Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. How's it going, everyone? This is Daryl Surratt, and for those of you who are just tuning into the show for the very first time this week, this week is a different format than our typical episode in that the entire duration of the show is going to be our interview with Tim Eldred. Tim Eldred is the webmaster for StarBlazers.com, so he knows a heck of a lot about StarBlazers and Space Battleship Yamato and knows more about Armored Trooper Votoms than probably anybody, which is why we have him on the show this week, since Armored Trooper Votoms has just been re-released by CPM, and you should all go buy it. In addition, Tim Eldred has done extensive work in American comic books and American animated television shows, such as this old show that I used to watch on USA Network called Wing Commander Academy, based off of the PC games from the yesteryear, as well as Teen Titans, which more people have probably heard of. He also worked on the old CG animated series Heavy Gear, as well as the more recent CG animated series Spider-Man that aired on MTV. His new book, Grease Monkey, comes out on May 30th, He's worked on tons more than that. So listen to this episode because we're going to be talking about all those things. To listen to the rest of our shows, which are not all done in this fashion, please go to our website at www.animeworldorder.com or just download the other shows in iTunes since that's where you all seem to be getting the show from anyway. Okay, well, here goes. Whenever you're now, are we live or are we recording? Okay. It's not going straight out on the radio. <laughs> okay, so I can swear at the traffic around me and not worry about it getting out. Yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. don't worry yeah. about that. Okay, so do we want to start this then? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Hey, and welcome to our interview segment, and with us today we have Tim Eldred. Howdy, fans. Tim Eldred, could you tell us who you are and uh, why you're on this podcast? <laughs> uh, well, I've been an anime geek for about as long as you've been alive, probably. Probably uh, longer. Probably, yeah. <laughs> to get an image in your heads, dear listeners, if you've ever seen the movie Revolver, and you shouldn't see this movie because it's kind of bad, but Tim Eldred looks remarkably much like the Sorter. <laughs> no one has seen that Very movie, well. but it's all right. Not having seen that movie myself, I can't endorse that opinion one way or the other. <laughs> Tim has obviously yeah. been around anime fandom since the very beginning, and when I say anime fandom, I mean in America, and so he's got all kinds of stories about that sort of thing. Tell us, Tim, how did you get into all this? Well, I was in high school back in 1980, and a friend of mine who was a big sci-fi nut just like me came up and said, have you seen this cartoon on after school? It's called Star Blazers. you got to check it out. It's awesome. It's way better than even Battle of the Planets. And to me, that was high praise because Battle of the Planets was a religious experience for me. Mm. And... There was Speed Racer before then, and I'd watched both of those shows every single day, but at the time I had no idea that they were anime. We didn't have a word for that. We just knew that they were on daily, and they looked different from the stuff that was on Saturday mm-hmm. mornings. And it also seemed to have this edge to it that was a little sharper. 
the writing had been dumbed down a little bit by the translation process. But Were you able to actually to... tell that was the case when watching um, it in high school? Well, not knowing what the original thing was, I couldn't compare it, obviously, but there mm-hmm. was just something lying underneath it, some layer of magic that just spoke to me, and it told me, this is different, pay attention. Yeah. Now, now I understand that Star Blazers was the first serialized cartoon that was on television at the time. Did that have any major effect in differentiating it from a lot of the other shows at the time? Well, it made you want to tune into the next episode much more than a a show that was self-contained and never really went anywhere. Mm -hmm. Star Blazers carried you from day to day in such a great set of cliffhangers that the moment one episode ended, you started counting down the hours. That was a completely new experience for a lot of us because it not only rewarded us for our patience, but it also required us to remember things. So Mm -hmm. if you had an attention span and a memory, it became an even greater experience. An attention Mm -hmm. span and a memory is something that modern people (laughs) don't really seem to attribute the cartoon viewing public to have for the most part. I don't know. We'll talk more about that with you in a minute since you uh, obviously do a lot of work in that field. Wasn't Star Blazers the first one, in fact, that even kept any Japanese names in the credits at all? Hadn't the other ones kind of... Well, going back later and seeing Speed Racer, it had some Japanese credits. Oh, okay. Um, The original creator was credited, and I think maybe some of the animators as well. But I was much younger when Speed Racer was on the air, and I wasn't Mm -hmm. really trained to look for that. Right. But by the time Star Blazers came along, uh, it was 1980, so I was in the 10th grade at that point. Mm -hmm. Most 10th graders I I know, most people my age aren't even trained to look for that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, after Star Blazers, you saw it on TV... You knew it was something different. At what point, you mentioned you were into science fiction, obviously, since you were into sci-fi around the 80s. I'm guessing Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Star Wars was number one. It ruled my world. And so how would you, out of, from someone who was both a Star Wars and a Star Blazers fan, how would you compare the two? If they were like your sons and you had to pick just one. (laughs) That's cruel, Daryl. That's cruel and unusual. I would say uh, if you wanted to typify them in terms of children, like say if I had one son named Star Wars and the other named Star Blazers, the Star Wars son would have been the football captain, and the Star Blazers son would have been a champion of the debate team or something. Hmm. That's an interesting way of putting it. It didn't have the muscle because obviously it was not quite as visually sophisticated as Star Wars, Mm -hmm. but it had a lot more intelligence behind it. And that's not to denigrate Star Wars in any way, because it's still great and wonderful. But right. It's just a different category of story. Star Blazers was also much bigger in scope. There was just more going on, because it had more hours to tell its plot. Right. In 1980, which is the year I was born, there obviously <laughs> was no internet, no anime conventions, barely even anime rooms at sci-fi conventions, Describe the fandom at the time, what you did to take the next step after seeing these shows. All right, there's more out there. Where do I go from here? What would you do in 1980? Well, what we did have in 1980 were science fiction conventions, mostly centered around Star Wars and Star Trek. But even there, if you looked around, you could find these little sort of cults off in the corner talking about Japanese cartoons. And occasionally you'd see some bit of really eclectic merchandise in a dealer's room, like a magazine from Japan or a model kit or something. Mm -hmm. It just 
stood out as something different. And what made it really interesting to us at the time was that we had no idea how much we didn't know. But we assumed that there must have been something much bigger going on under the surface that we didn't have access to. And, of course, for a typical science fiction fan, that's like licking the shop. You know, <laughs> you, could, you had developed this, this ability to scrounge things and search high and low and look in the unexpected places. So um, that would sort of breed more dedicated fans, just the scarcity of the information, you would say? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think you have to be more obsessive. You know, you had to be just to get anything. That's right. And you also had to have some social skills because the only way to get it was to know somebody mm-hmm. and to yeah. make them your friend. There was a huge tape trading network that arose. It obviously originated among fans in Japan, but certain connections had been made by fans from America. Either they lived in Japan for a while or they had friends there, or maybe their family visited, or was part of a military base, or whatever. There was also a connection in Hawaii, because I think that was the first state to actually have Japanese programming on TV. Tape trading networks started that way. That was the core. They spread out house by house. I mean, it was literally a grassroots effort to spread this stuff around. Mm-hmm. And the way it worked for me was I made a friend and bought my first VCR and copied some of his tapes and then found friends or heard of people in other states that also collected tapes. And I had things they didn't have. So little by little, we started trading. And I think at my peak, I was probably trading with a couple of dozen people at any given time. Wow. Yeah, uh- and that took me through the, the mid-'80s. In the process of this trading, did you manage to come across the original Japanese versions of Star Blazers? Yeah, I sure did. Uh, in fact, one of my earliest friends had some original Space Battleship Yamato episodes and some of the movies, which I had no idea even existed when I saw Star Blazers on television. So suddenly, there was this whole extra layer. In fact, there were multiple layers to the story that I hadn't even guessed at. You can imagine how exciting that was. Right. I was told by a couple of fans that back around then, sci-fi conventions used to have viewing rooms as well. And if they had an anime room, they sometimes called it the Star Blazers room. I don't know if you ever did. <laughs> yeah. T- yeah, was yeah, that, that would happen. I participated in some of those myself. What it took was somebody with a VCR, which was pretty rare in the first half of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they cost like $800 or something, right? Right, right. <laughs> My first one cost over 600 Wow. And I can't imagine paying that much now. But uh, <laughs> anyway, what you needed was a VCR and a tape collection, and nobody's tape collection was ever perfect. Everything had been copied over mm. and over and over. So often, by the time it got to you, twentieth generation. Been, yeah, exactly. Most of the <laughs> yeah. color had been bled out. A lot of the sound was garbled. Mm-hmm. But it was still fascinating because the original quality of this was obviously so unique and different that. Very quickly, if you could pass whatever little video glitches were sitting in the foreground. Mm-hmm. That's uh, pretty amazing, because I don't really see that attitude carrying over into the modern day. There's a lot of people... Well, it doesn't like, have to. It, it doesn't, doesn't have, have to, to in the age of DVDs right, and such, right. where you can go to the store and buy this stuff. I mean, I can mm-hmm. go and buy Star Wars Season 1 right now. Yeah. yeah, DVD exactly. quality. And where you can Which, rip to computer at a fairly high level of quality pretty easily. Oh, you were uh, in this tape trading network, a pretty elaborate network that you contacted people mm-hmm. all over through various means. At what point did you start getting into other fan activities? Like, I guess the big thing at the time then was 
without BBSs even, there were fanzines and the like, correct? Yeah, fanzines. And... Right, I did a few of those. Tell there us about was that. also, uh, well, the step after collecting tapes and setting up a video room at a convention was actually setting up your own club, which is something else I did. At the time, I lived in Michigan, and one of the, uh, the cities that I lived close to was Ann Arbor, of course, which had a very liberal college community in it. And those are great places to go because everybody's interested in something new and different. Even before I arrived there, there was already sort of an anime underground. So when I showed up with a huge library of tapes and, and started contacting people and saying, how would you like to get together once a month and watch stuff? So you were God uh, then. <laughs> they couldn't sign up fast enough. So <laughs> that club is still alive today. I've seen uh, oh, wow. occasional little mentions of it on the Internet. It's called Animania. And it's, I think, now formally recognized by the University of Michigan as a legitimate campus group. Animania, that was, a pretty, cool. that was a pretty progressive name in the mid-'80s, since a lot of people didn't even call it anime then. That's right. Now, Japanimation? Yeah. Yeah. Japanimation was still a common term. After a while, that sort of fell out of favor as anime became more and more accepted. Mm -hmm. We used the word Japanimation because it told you what it was in a single word. And if you said anime, the usual answer would be, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now that we've entered a more open generation, words like that are much quicker to catch on. Mm -hmm. It becomes a buzzword. It enters the yeah. lexicon, and, and after a, a short time, you don't have to explain it anymore. Well, yeah. After running an anime con, sorry, Clarissa. <laughs> but just out of curiosity, obviously, since you're running an anime, con anime club... You wouldn't watch nothing but Star Blazers. What other shows at the time were you guys into? We were big into Fist of the North Star. Uh, yes. We watched all of Excellent. that. We watched. Well, you uh, watched Armored all Trooper of Fist of the North Star. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I showed him Armored Trooper Votums. We were one of the first to show the Akira movie. Excellent. Yeah, I was just about to ask if Votums was around at this point. That well, you Votums I want to ask something the... about Fist of the North Star. That was a show that was shown on Hawaiian TV, subtitled rather haphazardly. This was back in the days when fan subbing was not an easy thing to do. I have in my possession here a synopsis of an episode of Fissa North Star from like 20-some years ago. Okay. How commonplace was these things? Would it be just you'd show something and then someone would have this thing in their hand and read it to, so people would that, know what if, was going on? If we were lucky, we had that. Oh, okay. If we were really lucky, we had a fan sub. But th as you say, they were, were extremely rare then because you had to actually invest in a lot of equipment to make it. And you had to get a translation and you had to figure out the timing of everything. And it was a huge, very expensive process. So how would uh, you convince that, people uh, to watch Fist of the North Star since it's kind of one of these pariahs of anime that I happen to really enjoy myself, but most people won't give that show a shot. So what was the trick or what was it that you guys saw in it that a lot of people just well, one of the reasons one of the reasons fits of the north star has a tough time is because the animation is so quick and dirty but once you get past that you have to admit that the story moves really really slow until you get about to episode 50 and then it takes off from that point on it becomes almost a totally different thing yeah my answer to that was to show them the movie which neatly encapsulates the first 50 episodes. And the animation is much better, and it's just a much more enjoyable thing to watch than mm. the 50 half hours. I hooked them with that, and they were married to it from that day on. 
But that brings up another point. The other quality that everybody seemed to have then that seems much rarer now was a willingness to watch something with no subtitles and no translation. By that time, I'd picked up quite a few story details, and so I was able to give a little bit of a narration. But a lot of times it turned into mystery science theater (laughs) in a good way. (laughs) And that just made it more enjoyable. It added an extra level of entertainment to it that, that brought us all together. But the willingness to watch something that wasn't translated or subtitled in any way, I think, was an example that you can look at as everybody was sort of inspired. You know, everybody was looking at the visuals and wanting to know so badly what was going on that they were willing to puzzle it out. Mm-hmm. And I was at the head of the pack on that one. When it came time to start doing fanzines and newsletters, I began to take what I had learned and put it into print and the process of doing that required me to study it even further and figure out even more things and just going by the visuals and occasional rudimentary translations that I would come upon. Mm -hmm. And that whole process is what led me to do the very first fanzine that was dedicated to a single show, and that was the Armored Trooper Votum's Viewer's Guide. Is that the one that's on that DVD set? Is that the same one? He's asking whether or not the fanzine PDF that's on the newly re-released Armored Trooper Votoms DVD sets that you worked on, is that the same fanzine that that's you're exactly referring to? That's exactly the same one. Oh, yes, wow. you got it right. That is a really interesting extra to have on the discs, because I don't think yeah. I've ever seen a fanzine included on a professional release before. They had to convince me that this was a good idea, because after I did that, and then subsequently learned more about the show it became less and less accurate as time went mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. But it served a vital purpose in getting Votums brought over here because when I started sending out copies of the finished fanzine, it caught a lot of people's eyes. The fact that it was so big, for one thing, it was over 150 pages. And your uh, typical so fanzine was, back then was maybe only 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it was professionally typeset. And mm-hmm. all the artwork was professionally composed. I was uh, a graphic artist at the time, so I just naturally mm-hmm. had all those skills. And, and uh, I was really impressed. I mean, it's 170. I was really impressed. It was uh, 173 <laughs> pages long. That must rival some of the professional books that have come out about Votoms. Well, maybe in terms of length, sure. But what it accomplished, most importantly, was somebody could pick it up and see how heavy it was and realize, hey, there must be something good here. Otherwise, this guy wouldn't have spent all his time and energy on it. I guess that brings up another point. Now, you're kind of well-known for being, like, the number one Votoms fan in the, in the world. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you got into Votoms and how you discovered that show? Sure. Well, it was one of the first shows that I got to see back in the early 80s. I think it was probably 83 or 84. It had to be after 83 because that's when the show debuted on Japanese TV. The same friend of mine who had the Yamato episodes and movies also had the first five shows of Votum. Okay. One day he was just sticking tapes in and we were looking through things and he said, Hey, you ought to check this out. This is something else I just found. Within five minutes, I was doomed. (laughs) It just had such a great story and such a perfect setup. The design work and the music and the animation at the time to me were so great and compelling that I decided at that moment to spend as much time and money as I could to find out everything I, that was learnable about this show. 
Were you aware of the existence of Gundam now? Because Votoms is made by the same studio, but it, it's a very different show. Right. Uh, I did know about Gundam. I'd heard the name, but I hadn't seen any of it. Votoms got to me first, so it sort of seized my imagination before Gundam did. I always liken Gundam to kind of... Oh dear, we lost Tim. Um, let me call him back. Hey kids, do you like Japanese animation but have a hard time figuring out what to watch? Then you need to listen to the weekly anime review podcast, where we talk about giant robots, blazing swords, magical girls, and other weird Japanese cartoons. Curse those evil octopi. So head over to www.weeklyanimereview.com or look for us in your favorite podcast directory. The Weekly Anime Review Podcast. Anime reviews for your ears. I'm getting his voicemail a lot, though. I'm so sorry about that. Oh, no problem, Tim. Was it a dead zone on the uh, highway? I, I drove through a really patchy area. Just went out, but I'm back. We were talking about Gundam and Votum. Yeah. Yeah. With regards to Gundam being the Roy Rogers-style Western and Votoms being more like the Sergio Leone-style spaghetti Western. What, do, what are your <laughs> thoughts on that? Well, I haven't heard him explain that way before. That's interesting. How would you explain I would, it? I would categorize... Gundam as more of a Star Wars type story, and Votoms as more of a Blade Runner type story. Interesting. It was a lot, it was a lot darker, but it had a different flavor of meat to it. And it went places that the other show didn't, specifically because it was not written primarily for a young audience. Right. Uh, Gundam was aimed more at the model-buying kids, probably, you know, around 8 or 10 years old. And on Votums, they didn't really concern themselves with that. They wanted to write a story that would appeal to older viewers first and children second. And I think they succeeded quite admirably. And that's one of the reasons the show still stands out even today, because the characters are, for the most part, adults, and the themes are all very mature. It just brings a lot of different items to the menu. Reminds me, the main character of Chirico in Votums, he's about 18 years old, while... Right. Um, Ray, Amuro Ray is, what, 14 or something? 16. 16 or so? Younger, in any case. But, I mean, he's 18, but he acts like a 30-year-old or, or something. I'm talking about Chirico now. Yeah, well, he's 18 after having gone through an entire lifetime of war, so obviously that would mature somebody pretty quickly. Now, I heard that Chirico QB was modeled after Steve McQueen. Is that true? Yeah, that's something that has come up over the years. The producer of the show, whose name is Ryosuke Takahashi, was a big fan of American films, and particularly westerns, and he was watching a western one day named Junior Bonner, starring Steve McQueen. And he played a rodeo star who was going from town to town and competing. So Takahashi thought, what about a rodeo with robots? How about I have some guy going from town to town with a robot competing in all these sports, like wrestling and gunfighting and all this? And that became one of the primary ideas that drove the show. Specifically, it resulted in the battling circuit, which is what comes up after this uh, long galactic war, where they've got all this surplus equipment around, all these robots and things, and uh, they turn it into pro wrestling, and they call it battling. And right. That's how Kiriko kind of re-enters society, through that aperture. Now, around this time, uh, you've put out the Votoms fanzine, you're heavily involved in Star Blazers, you're doing various things... At what point did you start getting involved with Voyager Entertainment? Well, that 
came in sort of the next phase of my career. At the time, I had the anime club and was doing the Votem's fanzine. My career was graphic arts, and I worked in a lot of ad agencies and places like that. And a few years later, I got into comic books, which was a longtime goal of mine. And it, it was actually anime and manga that helped that to happen because it had such a huge influence on my drawing style. It sort of naturally set me up to draw manga-style comics just at the time that they were becoming a fad. Now let's back up. When you say manga-style comics, we should point out that you had a drawing background first before you started doing this, correct? That's correct. Okay, That's correct. So, so you knew how to draw the human form first, and then you went the manga style. A message for all those out there with webcomics who just want to emulate <laughs> their favorite manga. Learn yeah, the form definitely. first. Well, you can't help but be influenced by the stuff you like. And I started being influenced before I knew anything about anime and manga. So American comics influenced me, European comics, painters, just about everything I could get my hands on that I liked. So I was already kind of underway and on my career path when anime and manga sort of hit me between the eyes. That gave me another layer of things to add to what I could already do. And what made manga so interesting is that since it had originated inside a different culture, it had a different set of visual references and a sort of different visual language. It wasn't necessarily better than the one we had, but it seemed fresher and more versatile because it had been used to greater variety. So it was a process of spotting those techniques and learning them and sort of adopting them as an accent to this language that I was already speaking, if you know what I mean. Tell us about this comic that you were mentioning. You said you'd gotten into comics. What was the means in which that happened? Well, I showed up one day at a convention in Chicago. And this was about 10 years after I had started going to comic book conventions and showing my work around. And I had developed some original stories that were very anime-inspired. They had robots and stuff in them. And I showed this stuff to an editor who worked for a company that doesn't exist anymore called Malibu Comics. Oh, yes. They, <laughs> I remember Malibu. You remember that yeah, terrible they, Street Fighter comic? <laughs> <laughs> One of the first manga-style comics that became popular was Ninja High School by Ben Dunn. Oh, yeah. 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 And Malibu was the publisher for that, and I picked it up and I liked it. And I approached them at the convention and said, hey, I'm a big fan of this Ninja High School comic, and it's sort of similar to what I do. Would you like to have a look? And they did, and... The editor looked up at me and said, you know what, I think I can use you on a project that's coming up. We've just gotten the right to adapt an anime feature film called Lensman, which goes way, way back. Lensman <laughs> came out in the... Uh, we reviewed Lensman we on a previous a episode, actually. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, so you don't need me to inform you about that. But Lensman became my first professional comic book shop. They had the rights to adapt it into a comic, and they thought I was the guy to do it, so they hired me, and we were off and running. That said, led to a whole avalanche of anime and manga-style comics that went for years and years. Go ahead. Now, when you say an adaptation, exactly how would you go about turning this into a comic? Would you basically watch the work and then just put it as it was on the page? Well, there was a writer already attached to it, and his job was to turn the movie script into a comic script which means taking the story material and breaking it down a little bit differently so it could be interpreted 
as a set of still images as opposed to a set of moving ones. That's a whole technique that we could discuss later if you want to, but for the sake of moving this along, he was the one who wrote the scripts and passed them along to me. His name is Paul O'Connor, by the way. I would then have to draw pages based on Paul's scripts. And being a writer myself, or at least a wannabe writer, <laughs> I threw a lot of original ideas in, and we sort of commiserated. And by the time we were done, for my money, I thought we did a, an adaptation that was much better than the anime film, which was really kind of thin. It didn't have a whole lot going on in it. Right. Reminded I you mean, of Star Wars, huh? <laughs> yeah, they, were, they really wanted to do Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, Lensman had never been one of my favorite films. I liked its visuals, but the story was very, as I say, it was very thin. It was very lacking. In... Were you familiar with the original Lensman novels already, and were you a fan of those at all? Well, I heard about the anime first, and then when I saw a Lensman novel in a bookstore one day, I thought, oh my god, they adapted the anime. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, I learned otherwise as soon as I opened the copyright page. Mm. Prior to taking on that assignment, I did pick up each of the original Lensman novels, and I read all of them. Uh -huh. I saw a lot of great stuff in there, and I thought, well, maybe we ought to try to nudge the story back into something closer to the original. Maybe we could borrow some of the special terminology or uh, even rejigger the story a little bit so it mm -hmm. follows that continuity. But I found out that we were actually forbidden to do that because, oh. because the Doc Smith estate had sort of disowned the movie and right. they didn't want to confuse the two properties. Right, yeah, they were very dissatisfied, I remember hearing, with the movie. Yeah, they didn't like it at all. Yeah. Because, well, let's be honest, it didn't follow the original. Right, right. It was a very play. bad adaptation. That's right, that's right. Well, we tried to make it a good adaptation, and for my money, I think we did it. Mm -hmm. That lasted probably a year, maybe a little longer, and that led me on to bigger and better things, because my very next assignment was Captain Harlock. Ooh. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, and that was like a dream come true. After, that was another uh, thing that was big during the uh, early 80s, obviously because it shares the same creator as Star Blazers. As, as yeah, Yamato. Yeah, yeah, so naturally, if you like Star Blazers, you have mm -hmm. that to gravitate towards. I imagine Harlock had made the rounds uh, among the early fans already. Yeah, definitely. That yeah. was also one of the first things everybody wanted to see, because the character design was just so striking. Mm -hmm. Everybody spotted Captain Harlock and instantly wanted to know, what's this guy's story? Yeah, I think that is probably one of the best designs I can think of. In mm -hmm. you know thinking back on anime and manga, that design is one of the great classics, I think. That's right. Right up there and with Kenshiro. Today. <laughs> <laughs> I was serious. <laughs> so, I'll always have a soft spot for Kenshiro. Kenshiro knows where all the soft spots are. <laughs> <laughs> all yes, and he makes them explode. All 708 of them. That's right. So you've been getting some comics work, some steady work at this point. Right. And at what point did the Star Blazers stuff start happening for you? Well, shortly after my first job with Malibu, they decided they wanted me to join their staff, and so they moved me across the country from Michigan to California, where I still am now. And I continued to do comics for them in addition to working in their art department. And that put me in a position to see a lot of things move in and out. Malibu was pretty well known at the time, and lots of companies came to their door with 
licenses and properties for various things, movies, TV shows, videos, what have you. One by one, they would come to Malibu and say, hey, I've got this property. I think it'd be great if we could do a comic book based on it. And one of the companies that came knocking was Voyager Entertainment. Star Blazers had changed hands a few times since it was on TV in 1980. At this point, we're in the early 90s. Voyager was actually the third company to pick up the video rights, and they're the ones that still have it, so there won't be any more, as far as I know. Can you tell us a bit about Voyager Entertainment? Like, are they, is it just one guy in his garage? That's the story I keep hearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very small company. Very small. The owner's name is Barry Winston. Voyager actually has other business interests. He's also a uh, designer of advertising, outdoor advertising of all things. He's actually pretty well known for it. But he happened to be a friend of the producer of Yamato. Yoshinobu Nishizaki? Yeah. I think we they were in the a yacht club together. The Nish. <laughs> <laughs> so Nishizaki, at one point, got all the rights back into his own hands after they expired with whoever owned them in the beginning. And he turned them all over to Barry Winston and said, I'd like you to run my American operation. Gave him all the videos he needed, said, go to town, do whatever you want with Star Blazers, and you pretty much have my blessing on all of it, which was a great gift, because when Barry Winston contacted Malibu, saying that he owned Star Blazers and thought they might be interested in doing a comic, they turned him down, but I was in a position to sort of walk away with that. And so I took it upon myself to contact Mr. Winston, and I said, Malibu has declined because they have a lot of other things on their plate they'd rather do, but I could help you to create your own comic. Because at that point, I had been in the industry long enough to know all the steps, mm. and I teamed myself up with a couple of like-minded souls named John Ott and Bruce Lewis. And you know, we looked at each other one day and said, we could put on a show. And so we kind of became this unofficial little production studio called Studio Go. And we went to uh, Voyager and said, we have all of the skills and all the knowledge you need to create and publish Star Blazers yourself. And he thought that sounded like a great idea, so we, he hired us to do it. That sounds like the fan's dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> this is like now a whole string of fan dreams come true. If I could take this conversation and send it back into time about 20 years, I wouldn't believe a word of it. Yeah. <laughs> Here's something with regards to being completely unbelievable. We got an email from the show sent to us by a guy named Derek Liu, and I just thought you'd like to hear this, Tim. Here's what okay. he writes. He says, Hi, guys and gal. My name is Derek. I'm from New York. Just wanted to write in and say how much I enjoy the show. I've been an anime fan for a while now. Actually, I was named after Derek Wildstar. By my older wow. sisters, so I was pretty much doomed from birth. It was a toss-up <laughs> between it was a toss-up between Derek Wildstar and Mark Venture, but my last <laughs> name is only one syllable, so Mark doesn't flow as naturally. <laughs> Do you think this is a justified action to name your children after Derek Wildstar? Would, would you um, follow suit? <laughs> well, uh, speaking as a parent myself. Okay, I have to admit I did succumb to the fanish desire to name my offspring after a, a fictional character. Became a father in 1989, back in the midst of all this stuff that was happening. I had a daughter. Now, if, if she had been born a son, I was strongly prepared to lobby for the name Amaro. Wow. Fortunately for her, that didn't happen. But I did 
have a backup plan. If she was born a girl, I wanted <laughs> to name her Fiana, after huh. the main character in Bodum's. Hmm. Wow. Yep. That became her middle name. So her full name is Genevieve Fiana Eldred. Hmm. And she's 16 now. And when she tells her friends that she's named after an anime character, they think that is the coolest thing they've ever heard of. (laughs) See, I wish that I had had something like that, because then I could be really cool if I was named after an anime character. But I was named after Clarissa from Lindsman, which, not really the anime version of the book, but (laughs) that's not really an anime that's really going to get you street cred by. (laughs) I'd count it. Man, I'm feeling old now that you mentioned that your daughter is 16. The time I saw her, she was 8. <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, and, and you were mentioning how you... I, I really enjoy the fact that she's an anime fan, too. And she just sort of gravitated toward it on her own. I showed her some things, but I never really tried to force her to sit down mm-hmm. and watch. You it mentioned you'd showed her to... Yamato, actually, when she was like 9 or 10, right? Yeah, yeah, she's seen it all. How does she like the older shows? She's not as willing to watch them as the newer stuff, but I think that's just because the newer stuff is so much easier to get and there's so much more of it. Mm. Uh, Uh And there's a lot more variety. I think also a lot of the newer shows are very strongly aimed at girls, whereas the older shows were not. Right. So some of her favorites have been Sailor Moon, Revolutionary Girl Utena, and right now she's a huge Princess Tutu fan. Well, those are all very good shows. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine by me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't complain. And I'm glad she graduated out of Pokemon. <laughs> Can you believe Pokemon has been on for 10 years now? Yeah. Wow. Amazing. There are going to be people saying how old school they are for watching Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon it's going to be old school. Going back again, you mentioned you'd struck a deal with uh, your studio Go Compatriots, Bruce Lewis, and who was the other one? John Ott. Okay. To make the Star Blazers comic, you were writing your own story, correct? How did the well, fans to respond know, to that? The, the response was great. It seemed like you couldn't go wrong because uh, everybody loved it so much. But we tried to steer away from giving them something that they'd already seen before. Of course, one of the first things you cared you'd want to do if you had the opportunity was to retell the entire first TV series, those first 26 episodes, and mm-hmm. then move on to the next 26, and then just keep going, and eventually, you know, over your lifetime, adapt the entire saga. But I didn't think we had that much freedom, because comics at the time were in a downturn economically, and I thought if we try to commit ourselves to adapting all 26 episodes chances are we're not going to make it to the end. And that would be a real shame because we'd never get the opportunity to move past that. Mm-hmm. And so it was up to me to write the first issue. And I thought, why not try to adapt the first series in a single issue? Everybody's seen the, the, the shows, or if they haven't, they can certainly go put on the tapes anytime they want to. So let's do something different with it. And so what I created out of that was sort of a montage of the whole first series just picking out a few key moments and writing a, uh, a narrative for them that observed things from a different perspective. And that perspective was the logbook of Captain Avatar. What happens is we join the story between the two TV series. So Series 1 has already happened. Mm-hmm. Derek Wildstar is given Captain Avatar's logbook. 
and he reads it on the night before he's going to go off on a one-year-long patrol. And it retells what happened in the first series from the viewpoint of Captain Avatar. And uh, he spends a lot of his time in his logbook observing Derek Wildstar. Uh, it's a chance to see what your mentor thinks of you. It was a really interesting story to write. I go back to that every now and again and think, man, I was more on the ball than I thought with this thing because it's really held up. Some things I go back and reread that I did back then I don't like. <laughs> one thing or another. But this one is still solid. After you did that first issue that encapsulated the first story or the first season of Star Blazers, and eventually mm-hmm. you started striking out into original territory. That's right. What I just described was in issue zero of the series. Issue one did the same thing for the second TV show, only that was sold from Deathlock's point of view. And right after that, we moved into the first of the movies, which is The New Voyage. And we adapted that one scene for scene because we wanted to have everybody go through that sort of rite of passage where they move out of the Star Blazers continuity that everybody knows really well and into the Space Battleship Yamato continuity. This is one of those stories that hadn't been translated into Star Blazers. And so we made it our job to do that. And that filled up the next four issues. Following that, we decided it was time for an original story. So we turned it over to Bruce Lewis, who wrote a three-issue series about Sasha growing up prior to joining the cast in Be Forever, Yamato. So I think he came up with a really fascinating look at what she went through. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this character, but in The New Voyage, you meet her as an infant. Right, she's and in born. The next, in the next movie, Be Forever, she's an adult, but it's only a year later. And so Bruce had his hands full telling the story of how she grew up from baby to adult in the space of one year. Was that an oversight on the part of the niche or that you just had to <laughs> pick up for? Or was there a story uh, reason? No, it was, well, it was planned. It was part of the story. And it was a big surprise to everybody that only one year later, this infant is, is now fully grown. That was explained as something that happens to girls from the planet Iskandar. Iskandar, right. Mm. Yeah. That their population was endangered by a virus. And it became necessary for the women to grow to reproductive age as quickly as possible so they could continue the species. That level of logic is one of the things that stood out to me when watching Star Blazers. Whenever you try and look at a scene that seems slightly outlandish, they'd actually bring that up and then bring up a logical explanation as to why. And it's one of the little touches that kind of makes that whole series stand out to me. Mm-hmm. There was a scene in particular right. where they were walking down, I believe it was like into the barrel of a large gun or into like an engine or something like that. Me, the viewer, it's like, what if the ship starts to move? <laughs> they'll, all be, <laughs> they'll all be killed. And then right on cue, I think Sandor or someone like that said exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you did this very successful comic that did some new things. And people, for the most part, were reacting favorably to them. That's right. So what year is this we're talking about? Like mid-90s, 96 or so? Yeah, yeah, 95, 96. 95, 96. To shift gears a bit, around this same time, did you start getting work in Western animation? Well, it was almost exactly that time. That was when I moved out of doing comic books full-time into doing TV animation. And again, it was 
anime that helped me make that transition because I absorbed so much of it by that point. It sort of gave me a grounding in what it took to storyboard. Practice with storyboarding is much more intricate than comics. You have a larger number of drawings that you have to do to com communicate what's happening in a scene. So, for example, one page of a comic might be uh, maybe six or seven individual pictures. To cover that same material in animation, you, you might need closer to 50 or 60 pictures. And just for uh, reference for our listeners, could you name some of the things where you did some storyboarding work or just work in general on? Well, the very first storyboarding I ever did was a series for Universal that went on to, I think it was USA Network. Was it Wing Commander Academy? Wing Commander Academy, that's right. <laughs> based uh -huh. on the video game. You know, IMDB doesn't even list you as doing that. I just happened to know that you did work on that for, I believe it was character designs and storyboards, right? With Bruce Lewis. That's right. Right out of the, the shoot there, I was doing the work of four or five people. I hear some interesting stories about that, like how they, they didn't want to actually pay you. <laughs> Is there any truth to that? <laughs> no, that never happened. Okay. <laughs> I would say quite <laughs> I just that's, suspected that's something that because... I will say, uh, well, the animation industry pays its people. I have never, ever had a problem collecting money for what I had done in TV. It was different for comics. There were times <laughs> no. when I had to threaten money out of people. <laughs> uh, fortunately, that was not the, the rule. That was the exception. After Wing Commander Academy, and this is around the same time when you'd start also doing things with CPM on their original Votoms release? The CPM, that happened about the same time as Voyager, because when John and Bruce and I decided to form our partnership, our next decision was to go after multiple clients so that we could get as many different projects going as we could find. So in addition to approaching Voyager, we also approached CPM or U.S. Manga Corp, as they were known more commonly at the time. Right, right. And they went for the same deal. So, like, overnight, we suddenly had three projects going on. What was the third project? Well, let's see. Our first project for CPM was Gal Force, which was done entirely by Bruce Lewis. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and then Lee's Project ACO, which mm -hmm. was done by me. And then M.D. Geist, which was also done by me. <laughs> we all contributed to these at some level. So it was uh, a very healthy partnership for the time that it lasted. And that's what led me to finally get to work on Votums. Star Blazers and Captain Harlock were dreams come true, but Votums was the brass ring. That's the one I really, really wanted to do. That finally came to me after uh, I developed this relationship with CPM. And they had imported the show, and they wanted to do some merchandising. And they hired me to do the comic. And mm. so there I was. It's they, an uh, entire string of just amazing fan yeah. luck, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. This Votoms experience, that actually led to Heavy Gear? Is that right? Uh, yep. Yet another of those threads that nobody foresees. But looking back on it, it seems almost inevitable. When I did that viewer's guide, I passed it all over the place. CPM got a copy, different comic book publishers got a copy, and one also went to a game company called Ianus Publications. They had been known for the time, and I guess they're still known for a magazine called Protoculture Addicts. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. They're still based up in Canada, as far as I know. Right, they own Anime News Network. Right. Through some means by which I don't remember, 
they got a copy of the viewer's guide and they reacted just like CPM. They thought, this is really great. We've got to get some projects going based on this. And so they tried to get the rights to do a role-playing game. And when that didn't work out, they decided to take what they had developed in advance and convert it into their own original game, and that became Heavy Gear. And was that actually based on the computer game of the same name? Because I recall there was some sort of Battletech-like game as well. Do you know anything about that? I think the computer game came later. I'm pretty sure Heavy Gear debuted as Booklet or a magazine, you know, a book-based game in Mm -hmm. print. And then everything else that followed that uh, moved it up a notch into the CG realm. Yeah, Um, tell people about Heavy Gear in case they've never heard of it, because I believe it was a syndicated show. Well, yeah, that's where it comes back around to me. I'm still amazed at how this came about, but after I worked on uh, Wing Commander Academy, I moved over to another studio, Columbia TriStar, which is owned by Sony. Worked there for a few years, and then to my complete shock and amazement, they got the rights to do a Heavy Gear TV series. And it's going to be a CGI series, 40 episodes, for a syndicator called Bobot, or BKN, Bobot Kids. Right, they also made the Roughnecks Starship Troopers Chronicles. Right, right. Again, I couldn't believe my luck. I was in the exact right place at the right time, and I ended up directing almost a quarter of all the episodes in the Heavy Gear series. And it was just like drawing Votums, except with different characters. So I got to have that Votums experience all over again. Man. Living the dream. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With regards to some more modern titles that maybe some anime fans would know about, could you talk about your work on Teen Titans, the animated series? I did a little bit of work for them last year. After Sony, I moved on to work for a lot of different studios. Most of the work I do these days is for Warner Brothers. The very first show I did for them was Shaolin Showdown, which is still on the air. It's on Saturday morning's WB. It's an American take on Dragon Ball. That's how I describe it to people. And it's one of the funniest shows I've ever worked on. I just love that one. Funnier than Dragon Tales? Uh, yes. <laughs> I remember... I remember one year at AWA, you had this tape, Dragon Tales Too Hot for TV. It was footage of Dragon Tales edited to look obscene. <laughs> How did that come about? Well, I was the uh, supervising director on the first 40 episodes of Dragon Tales. That put me in the position of not only doing the storyboards, but also supervising the post-production editing. Mm. And as episodes would come back from overseas, we would come upon these, these animation mistakes or these scenes that were done completely wrong. If you cut them out of the show and strung them together, you had a terrific <laughs> blooper reel. And so that's what you thought. They should yes, that as an that. extra on the Dragon Tales DVDs. <laughs> I don't think they would do that in a million years. But it's a great thing to have in my collection. The table needs to just find its way onto the internet on YouTube at some point. <laughs> Anonymously. <laughs> I don't think it'd be too hard to trace it back to the source. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I don't imagine too many people have copies of that. <laughs> oh, where were we? Teen Titans. Teen Titans, um, yes. I started working for Warner Brothers. In addition to Shaolin Showdown, I, I got other assignments from other shows. I worked on an episode of uh, The Batman. And they also asked me to pitch in on some Teen Titans uh, episodes because they were having trouble getting them done. 
I got to work on, I think, pieces of two shows, and then I did a, a large, in fact, two large action sequences for direct-to-video they're going to be doing soon. Oh, the uh, Teen totally. Titans Tokyo one? Teen Titans Tokyo, right. And oh, so okay. you, when you actually were doing the action sequences, you'd actually block out what would happen in those? because Well, that's the whole craft of storyboarding. You get a script exactly the same way I had done comic books. I would get a script that told me what the action meant was supposed to be and what was meant to be conveyed. And I would have to figure out the best images to uh, communicate all that. Okay, so is it just mm. like they fight and then you fill in the blanks? Or? <laughs> no, no, they have to be a little more sophisticated and detailed than that for television because a lot of the fight scenes will have very specific action beats. Now, you're, you're not limited to those. You can always add to them if you want to. But, for example... Robin would have to go through a certain series of events to get to a desired result, or uh, Beast Boy would have to change into a specific animal at a specific time in order to get a specific result. So they're pretty well choreographed on paper before we even start, but we have to find the best camera angles, Mm -hmm. the best timing, the best method of cutting from one scene to another in order to keep it lively and interesting and also to honor the intention of the script. Right. It's very, very rare to get a script that just says they fight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Do you remember offhand, like, any specific episodes that you worked on for, like, if people wanted to go back and look and and see what portions of the series that you specifically had a hand in? Okay, well, in Shaolin Showdown, I was a director on the first season. I think the standout episode is one called Shen Yi Bu in which there's a showdown on these big rock towers with giant koi fish jumping up and down. That was the first, not the first show I worked on in in that series, but it was the first one that I really sank my teeth into. Mm -hmm. And there's another one called Royal Rumble, in which all the characters have to spread out to different parts of the world and have individual showdowns for these prizes that they have to collect. Sort of like collecting the Dragon Balls. You get enough of them and then Mm. you get these... uh, extra abilities, very similar to that. So those were two of my very early Shaolin episodes. After that, in the second and third seasons, I worked on just about every episode mm-hmm. as a freelancer. So I didn't direct an entire show, but I, I contributed uh. very heavily. How much would you say has anime influenced your work in animation? Oh, heavily. Very, very heavily. And it's interesting because at the time I got in, there was sort of a grudging acceptance of anime among TV producers. They knew what it was, and they were no longer afraid of it, the way they were maybe five or six years earlier. So they would say, go ahead and put some anime influence in here, that's okay. And then we'd do that, and they'd want us to pull back a little bit. No, I didn't mean quite that much. And after a while, we just sort of overpowered them, because so many of us were anime fans, and were heavily inspired and and wanted to get that same level of energy into the shows. So in the time since then, which is almost 10 years now, the producers have completely turned around. They know the lexicon just as much as the artists do. Uh, To my complete amazement, in one screening of a Shaolin Showdown episode I had done, a producer turned to me and said, I love love that FD stuff. That's so great. (laughs) And I looked at him and said, you actually know what SD stands for? Yeah, super deformed. I love it. (laughs) And so we win. Wow. Yeah. 
Speaking of super deformed, do you happen to remember offhand which Teen Titans episodes it was that you did work on? Uh, let's see. The first one was the Kid Flash episode. I don't remember the name, mm. but I only did the very, very last part of that. The next assignment I had was for an episode called Calling All Titans, which was this amazing gathering of every single superhero character they've ever invented over the life of the series. Mm -hmm. And my work is sprinkled throughout that show. That was a fun one to work on because we didn't stick with any one character for too long. There was always a tiny little vignette, and then we cut away to another character and then cut back. Uh, because there are battles going on all over the world. Every villain against every hero. It's great. Yeah, I remember those those episodes and that kind of last sequence there. Did you, the... you mentioned reading comic books. Were you a fan of the Teen Titans comics of the 80s? Not really. In the miss... 80s, I was getting over my, uh, my Marvel fix. I wasn't uh... really ever a heavy DC Heroes fan. I knew about them, of course, but it's not something that I would seek out. And with the regards to Marvel, another series that you worked on was actually the Spider-Man series that was on MTV. Yeah, that's tell right. tell us about that one? Right. Again, that's something that came through my time at Sony, uh, or Columbia TriStar, if you want to call it that. By the time Spider-Man came along, the producer of the show, whose name was Audu Payton, had already employed me on many of his other shows. I worked under him on uh, Extreme Ghostbusters and Godzilla and uh, Heavy Gear. Almost got to work with him on Starship Troopers, but I was called away to do Dragon Tales instead. So when he was assigned to produce the Spider-Man series for MTV, uh, I was one of his first choices. And we still work together these days, too. Since Spider-Man ended, he directed a movie called Stuart Little 3, which was released to direct video this year. It was, it's out on DVD, and uh, I did a lot of work for that one, too. Spider-Man was a very different cat because it was CG. We already knew how to handle that, but it was Tomb Shader CG with all the, the outlines on it. And so that brought in a lot of different techniques that we hadn't learned before, so it was pretty interesting. How well did that do, since I guess they only made the 13 episodes? I, I was sort of hoping that after a, a second one they would have made more, but I guess that didn't happen. Well, Spider-Man got caught up in a big political battle between Sony and Marvel and MTV. It was a great artistic experience because of all the things I got to learn on it, but it was not pleasant when it came to the politics between those three big organizations. There was a lot of jockeying for authorship on that show because the movie had done so well. As soon as it hit the big box office numbers, everybody piled on the TV series and wanted to kind of own it. But there were three partners, so this became quite a contentious battle for creative control, which was settled after a while, but it was a long wait. And unfortunately, that battle kind of resulted in the series not getting renewed because everybody knew if they agreed to step in, they'd get burned again. Oh, um, that's yeah. unfortunate, since uh, yeah, I actually liked yeah. how they was able to capture a lot of the traditional Spider-Man comic poses mm -hmm. in the animation. Definitely, and by the end of it, the story had really built up. It's regrettable anytime you have you get to a cliffhanger and then you don't get a chance to resolve it. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's what happened here. But as far as I know, the ratings were always good and the uh, the fan response was always good. It was just that the people at the top couldn't agree on how to play with it. Would you say that's a pretty common occurrence with a lot of shows? Or up to a point, yes. 
anytime something new comes out, there's always a desire on the part of people on the executive level to get their name on it, to put their stamp on it. But after a while, they walk away. When it becomes successful and they don't have to tinker with it anymore, they tend to move on to something else, and then you get to play all you want. That's one of the things that made Shaolin Showdown so much fun. And Gerald, did you have a question? Um, I wanted to uh, ask about the Votoms DVDs and their first release and then their subsequent re-release and uh, your roles okay. in that. How did you get involved in the DVD releases and all of those extras that you put onto those original DVDs? Well, my DVD career started in 2000, and it's been ongoing. It's been concurrent with the animation career. It actually began with Star Blazers. I got a call from out of the blue one day from Voyager saying that they were preparing to release their shows on DVD, and they wanted me to brainstorm with them about coming up with some extra features. And so I saw it as an opportunity to do another viewer's guide, but in a different format. And that led to the creation of every single Star Blazers episode on DVD and all the Space Battleship Yamato movies. And after my experience with that, I was contacted by Central Park Media about doing the same thing with Votoms. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So this gave me the chance to, to redo the viewer's guide and bring it up to date and make it more accurate and package the information in a different way for a TV screen as opposed to a printed page. I really um, love those extras on those original DVDs. I was actually quite surprised at how much detail they did go into, and now that I actually got to see the original viewer's guide, I now see where that all came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a great opportunity for me to, to go back and polish that project and, and uh, make it much more accurate. And you also did something similar for the original Star Blazers DVD releases, correct? Yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned similar. getting the Voyager call, and that was like the extras. They were kind of shaped like the bridge of the, the Argo. Were you involved in that level of the presentation as well, or were you just... Providing no, absolutely them. everything. They turned it over to me. I was essentially the, uh, the project mm. manager. I created all the artwork that was needed, or I found it, packaged everything, formatted it. The only thing I didn't do on those DVDs was the authoring. How did that lead into the creation of the Star Blazers documentary DVD that you recently made? Uh, it seems like it's the next logical step. But the documentary itself is very much about Yamato in Japan mm-hmm. as opposed to Star Blazers, and actually the title makes reference to that. But That's right, and that is something that grew directly out of the DVD production. In addition to the Star Blazers TV episodes, I got to work on the Yamato feature films. There are five of them. And I decided that what I needed to do to keep those interesting for people who'd seen them over and over was to get some articles translated and start to put together a history of how this series was made and everything that happened in Japan during those original years. And it's a really big story. Yamato literally changed the whole world of anime and brought it forward into what we're familiar with now. And so over the course of the DVDs and then later the Star Blazers website, I had built up this gigantic archive of translated material, and I had collected lots of books over the years and various bits of merchandise here and there. So do you own the Yamato bicycle? (laughs) No, I did not own the bicycle. (laughs) You can bet I I would bid on it if it came up. (laughs) Dave Uh, Merrill was talking about the Yamato bicycle, and I believe he actually had the commercial for you on the 
on the DVD. Yeah, yeah. That's worth the purchase alone. <laughs> Buy the DVD for that Yamato yeah, bike. Uh, it well, is. Yamato is a lucky one in that case because new merchandise continues to be made due to its mm. enduring popularity. It's one of the yeah. few, like Fist of the North Star. Gundam. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Both and of which have PS2 games. That category too. There's Rotom stuff coming out uh, constantly. There's yep. A, right, I've, actu- I've actually got sitting in front of me right now the... Uh, World Mook 86 Votom Special, which I've been referring to this entire time for more information. <laughs> Cheater, you're supposed to just know it all. <laughs> I do know it all, but you know the pictures are so pretty. Speaking of DVDs, I I saw you were credited, this may be incorrect, but I saw that you were credited on the DVD that CPM, I believe it was, put out for They Were Eleven. Did you work on that? Yeah, that was a funny little side project. They threw me the, uh, the script for that. Okay. And they asked me to rewrite it. Uh, they gave me a raw translation, and they asked me to turn it into better English and also time uh-huh. it out. And so that's why my name is on that particular film. Yeah, I had wondered, because I saw you credited as translator, and I, I didn't think that I had, you really w- generally did translation, so I was a little... I wasn't sure if that was actually correct or not. Well, you were, but, you were right to be suspicious. Adaptation. But anyway, we were talking about the documentary. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. After several years of doing the DVDs and also the website, uh, like I said, I'd built up this, this huge archive of written material, and I'd also collected lots of books with images in them that I could use, and I'd gotten everything on Laserdisc as well. So one day I just sort of woke up and realized, hey, I've got all the pieces to a pretty big puzzle here. Maybe I could create a documentary out of it. And so... Uh, I called up Voyager one day and said, you know, I could make this happen, and uh, it would give you another DVD you could sell. And they said, great idea, let's do it. You've got some pull with Voyager, then. You could just call them up and say, hey, I've got some ideas for DVDs, let's do that. And they'll say, sure, or they'll think about it. (laughs) They're they're very happy to listen to my ideas. How about the idea of maybe, um, now that the documentary is out anyway, this might be a little more feasible, but subtitled episodes of Yamato in its original uncut form. Do you think... They would go for that? That's been something that the um, fans I'm have sure wanted for a while. I'm sure uh, they'd love to do it if they could. Oh, um, it's a legal thing, huh? Yeah, yeah. The rights to the original TV episodes in their original form are owned by a different company in Japan. So Voyager would actually have to license from them. It's not West Cape? Uh, West Cape no longer exists, as far as I know. They're really? Sure. I thought they were still around trying to remake Yamato one more time. <laughs> Oh, that's a whole other story. Oh, yeah, and well... Oh, well. Yeah. Nothing but time. <laughs> covered that in, in part when we did our review of Odin. Yeah, we, we reviewed Odin, Photon, Space Sailor, <laughs> Starlight last week as preparation for <laughs> for this one. Uh, what you, what's your take on Odin, Tim? Um, Odin, I think, was... Uh, <laughs> it, it started with the right idea, and they just lost it somewhere. For one thing, I think it was just too long. <laughs> CPM later put out a, a shorter version, which to my eyes, thinking is the better way to go. Because I remember so many times watching the original one and just falling asleep in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, but that didn't happen with the shorter version, so I think there's something to be said for editing after all. But the reward for sitting through the longer version is the ending that isn't in the shorter version. <laughs> the, the secret <laughs> ending. <laughs> We need to stop talking about Odin. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, 
Let us speak no more of this. Was that the story about, you know, the remakes of Yamato? Or was there more to it? Yeah, oh, there, are, no there have been many attempts to remake it over the years. This is something else I covered in the website. I don't know if I've talked enough about that. The website no, let's is... talk more about the website and what you right. do for it. Okay. Starblazers.com. Uh, yep. While I was doing the DVDs, this website came up as a means of supporting them and offering a way to purchase the DVDs online. And to help boost the interest a little bit, they asked me to start writing articles for that as if it were a newsletter. It actually began as a newsletter, but fortunately someone convinced them that it was much more economical to do a website. And they decided that it was worth updating every 60 days with new material. And so that's one of the ways that I was able to develop this big backlog of translated articles. One of the stories that I wrote during that time was an overview of all of the attempts that have been made since 1983 to bring back Yamato. Some of them were projects inspired by Yamato or done by the same people, like Odin. But there have been several attempts to bring back Yamato itself, and each one of them has ended in disappointment. For Yamato 2520? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, 2520, I think, again, was an idea that started off good, and they just lost it at some point. It wasn't enough about the original Yamato to keep the fans interested. If they'd given it another name, they might have lasted longer. I don't know. But from what I've seen, it just doesn't have much to do with the original. And so it didn't have the same spirit. And then something else that's come up to complicate it since then is that Nishizaki and Leiji Matsumoto had a professional falling out at one point. I don't know exactly what drove it, but it eventually got them both into copyright court in Japan. Um, I don't know what they actually saw it there, but... They were disputing who actually owned Yamato, and it oh, yeah. went on for a while. And the summary judgment of the court is that they both own it equally. And oh, I actually thought it out. was that Nishizaki won, is the story I'd always heard. No, it, it broke down the middle. Matsumoto, as the visual director, was awarded the visual rights, and Nishizaki was awarded the story rights. And so this is why Matsumoto can still put the Yamato in some of his other manga projects. But not the characters. But not the characters, that's right. I see. And he can't actually create a story about the original characters, because they are owned by Nishizaki. Two of them have to bury the hatchet and agree to work together again, otherwise the original cast will not be seen again on the original ship. So it's almost a mixed blessing that the original series had to be cut down and they had to take out Captain Harlock from the original show. That would have been a problem. If Matsumoto had lost the rights to Captain Harlock, I'm sure he'd, oh, he would have been very unhappy. Wow. So yeah, well, that's a I mean, blessing in disguise, I guess. Wow. You mentioned the character rights. You actually have on StarBoysters.com an ongoing webcomic yep. that is interesting. We'll talk about it momentarily. But you yep. actually utilize the Starblazers cast, like many of the originals, is that because Starblazers is sort of a different entity than Yamato at this point? Yeah, that's part of it. Remember, the charter that Barry Winston had when he started up Voyager Entertainment was that he could do whatever he wanted with Starblazers. The sole exception being the release of the Yamato feature films on home video. Which has since so, happened. Yeah, yeah. So he could generate new material... And I've been fortunate enough to be the, the actual you know, hands on the drawing board, as far as that goes. 
but it has to say Star Blazers. He's not able to actually produce a space battleship Yamato product. No. So anyway, this, this led to the creation of a brand new Star Blazers comic. And if you want to talk more about that, we can. Yeah, go for it. By all means, right. tell us about it. Okay. About 10 years ago, when Yamato 2520 was just about to debut, some of us heard that there was another Yamato project being conceived. The live-action one? <laughs> no, it, well, it might have been live-action at some point, but it, it eventually was developed as an animated feature film called Space Battleship Yamato Rebirth. It looked like it was going to be the one we were all waiting for because it would have the original characters and it would have the original ship. And this was before the copyright dispute, so everything was still intact. And a lot of the original creators were coming back to work on it, but also give it an update and a polish. And everything that we saw in it made it look like it was going to actually fulfill the promise. But for one reason or another, it never got made. It was developed up to a certain point. I think they had a story outline and they had a lot of designs, but it didn't go forward, I think, because Yamato 2520 didn't work out. I think it bankrupted West Cape. I see. I don't, I don't have direct evidence, but I think 2520 sales were so bad that they literally couldn't continue to produce anything. I can certainly believe that happening after what Yamato 2520 was. Right. <laughs> So, so you ended up having by. the story outline, this basic storyline outline, uh-huh. and you essentially built upon that into this comic. That's right. That's right. Ten years went by. It was obvious to me that Yamato Rebirth was dead in the water. But all those concepts still existed, and there was nothing at all standing in the way of me taking those and running with them and creating a new Star Blazers story, which is called Star Blazers Rebirth. After Yamato Rebirth. The chapter zero of this is also very much reminiscent of the chapter zero you were talking about in the previous Star Blazers comic, in that Derek Wildstar, who's now older, is having visions of Arriva Durchi Yamato, which, as we know, ended up being erased from continuity once season two of Star Blazers was made. Was Mm -hmm. that all part of the story outline that you saw, or was that... That was my own invention. It took me about a month to decide what I wanted to do with this story. Obviously, I'm not going to reveal all that here because it would just ruin anybody's suspense. Uh, <laughs> but what I asked myself through the entire writing process was, what would I want to see as a fan of the original series? And my answer was, first and foremost, I wanted to see everything taken into account, nothing erased, nothing left out, everything honored, and everything put together in such a way that if you knew what had gone on before, you would be rewarded for having that knowledge in your head when you read this. So when you read the first chapter, chapter zero, and you see that Derek Wildstar is looking into an alternate continuity, it adds levels of drama to the story. But at the same and time, it, if you aren't aware of, say, Rivadurchi Yamato, it's not like you'd be totally lost. Right. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I, I mean, I want uh, new readers to be able to jump on, too. And there are new characters to help them with that. Tell us about uh, these new characters. One in particular, a guy named Bruce Merrill. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did he come but, from? But, well, there was a set of characters designed for Yamato Rebirth. One of them was this hot-headed-looking young guy, and I decided to turn him into Bruce Merrill who becomes the new navigator, the new helmsman of the Argo. He's named after two of 
the, the biggest Yamato fans I know, Bruce Lewis and Dave Merrill. And that's, by the way, something that I'm continuing with. There are a lot of other fans whose names I'm borrowing for. Yeah, this. I think I saw Neil Nadelman's name sneak in there in a, in a fashion. Mm, no, I haven't used, I haven't used oh, yeah. Neil yet. But, oh, okay. Uh, you, you can bet I will. It's all in my head. <laughs> but just about all the new characters have some fan's name in them. That's something else I wanted to do just for fun, so that those loyal flag wavers who have been with it from the beginning can kind of see themselves as part of the phenomenon now. Mm-hmm. Does that extend to the personalities? Because Bruce Merrill, like you said, is this hot-headed, almost going-to-guy, robot hero kind of character. <laughs> All the others at this point in the story regard as a total jerk. Well, I'm not sure I would describe either Bruce or Dave as a going-to-guy <laughs> character with a hot head. But, um, <laughs> it just sort of naturally fell into place. As the story goes on, you'll see what, what makes him such a loose cannon. In fact, just yesterday, I finally wrote the chapter that explains what's going on there and why he just can't seem to get himself into the spirit of things. And so how often do new chapters come out? Every 60 days. I wish it could be more often. How many pages is each chapter on average? If I were to do them as printed comic book pages, each chapter is about half a comic book. Okay, about 16 pages. Yeah, between 10 and 14. Okay. And, it, and those it are full color. Every time, well, every time somebody sends a message, an email fan mail message, begging me to do this more often, I just have to tell them, I'm sorry, I have a day job. <laughs> Star Blazers Rebirth doesn't pay all my bills, unfortunately. <laughs> but anyway, a new chapter goes online every 60 days. As we're speaking, we're coming up on April 1st. That's when the next one goes up. On April 1st. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you something else interesting that's just come to light within the last month. There are also Japanese fans following this site. Really? Really? Interesting. And uh, they seem to like what's going on here. They're not huge numbers, but uh, I've got a friend who sort of watches these things and lets me know. She says they're, uh, they're liking it. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very happy to, to know that there's an audience you know, on the other side of the planet. And the, the best comment I got from that particular group was finally a Yamato story that might actually finish. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I remember watching the uh, documentary DVD and being very entertained by how Nishizaki ended Yamato about four times or so in its life. Well, uh, yeah, he he was an odd bird. He didn't want to continue it after the first series. Well, no, no, I'm, I'm... He definitely wanted to continue it after the first series, but he didn't want to continue it after... Arrivederci Yamato came out. I don't know if you really could continue it after Arrivederci Yamato. He was determined from the beginning that that would be the only other Yamato story because he just didn't want to continue it. He didn't want to be tied down to it, I guess. What changed Uh, his tune so drastically? The dollars? Yeah, I think the money did its part. But also it was Leiji Matsumoto who came up and said, we can't end it like this. We can't just kill off Uh all the characters. Look at the following that they have. The fans are so passionate about it. We have to give them more than this. So therein lies the difference between Leiji Matsumoto and Yoshiyuki Tamino. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess so. We can't just end this by killing everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was Matsumoto who prodded and poked and finally got Nishizaki to relent and do the second TV series. And after that, it was obvious that they could only just go onward and upward. Speaking of onward and upward, 
you have a project that's actually about to be completed after I've got to say like 15 years of right. uh, development. You mentioned the Star Blazers comic, and this is a another thing you've done work on called Grease Monkey. Right. Tell us about that, since you've been talking about this forever, for as long as I knew the name Tim Eldred, I've heard this thing being brought up, but it never actually approached completion until now, so tell us about Grease Monkey, Tim. Okay, well, Grease Monkey is an original comic book story I came up with way back in 1992, and it was in response to the state of the comic book industry at the time, when there were these huge waves of angry superhero characters, and uh, bad girl characters, these uh, mm-hmm. evil, wicked, nasty, unpleasant people that just seem to be populating every single comic book on the stand. That's still and going on. <laughs> not to nearly as severe not extent. Much, but yeah, it's, it's still kind of omnipresent to a degree that I'm kind of still pretty sick of. <laughs> Well, there was a point where it just wasn't fun to go into a comic book store anymore because everywhere yeah. you looked, there were these you know, grimaces looking back at you. Mm-hmm. And so I decided I needed an antidote to that, and I thought maybe other people did too. So I came up with Grease Monkey, which is this uh, science fiction comedy about an ape and a boy working on a spaceship, and they fix fighter planes, and they bicker, and they fight, and they laugh together, and they like the same stuff, and they have generally a pretty good time. And almost as soon as I finished the first episode, and at the the time I was just doing it for myself, just so I could prove that there was still fun out there, Mm -hmm. a Canadian magazine contacted me, and they were interested in running a feature, and they asked me if I had anything that they could use, and I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. And it became a feature in this magazine called Up and Coming, which was a comics news and sales magazine. That lasted for about six months. After that, I took the property over to Kitchen Sink Press, which is another publisher that's long gone now, and they published Mm -hmm. it in color. And after that, I took it over to Image, and they published it again. So during the 90s, it actually appeared three different times. Now, was it ever Um, completed in any of these publishings? or? Well, yes and no. I mean, the stories that I had written then filled up three regular comic book issues, and they all Mm -hmm. got published but I wanted to keep going, mm. and none of those efforts proved successful enough to maintain itself. But nothing gets me cooking faster and makes me more determined than cancellation. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of people give up, but it just makes me want to work harder. So I kept going, and I kept writing new episodes and kept drawing them. And I came out of that with over 350 pages of material. Finished that in 2002 and started shopping it around to book publishers because by this time, I thought comic publishers were not really the place to go anymore. Yeah, probably a smart move. And so I got a literary agent to represent it, and a couple of years later, he landed it at Tor Books. And it's finally going to be published this summer. It comes out May 30th, and it's Grease Monkey, the graphic novel. And it's much more than a pet project. It's it's pretty much my life's work up to this point. I mean, I've told you about a zillion other dream projects that have come and gone. This is the one that's the most personal for me because it came completely out of my head. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was influenced and informed by absolutely everything I've ever loved. So you'll see some anime influence in there and some comic book influence and all sorts of other things, too. 
And just as a side note, you can actually read a chapter or so of this on greasemonkeybook.com. Greasemonkeybook.com. Yeah, check out Grease Monkey, and that comes out in a few months. Is that right? May 30. So May it'll 30. be a, it'll be a summer release. It can already be purchased in advance at Amazon.com and also Walmart.com, for God's sake. So this will be in Walmart shelves? I guess so. If they have it on their website, they must be planning to sell it in stores, too. Did you ever envision the day that something that you did would be on Walmart shelves? I never envisioned the day when I myself would be in a Walmart store, so it's very surreal. (laughs) With regards to... Oh, no, I've forgotten what I was going to ask about. I should have written it down. Oh, yes. Very recently, about a few days ago, Hiroshi Miyagawa passed away. He was the person who composed the scores for Star Blazers. This was one of the aspects that's probably one of the most fondly remembered aspects of the show, the music. Would you say it was kind of a rare thing for the music to have been preserved from the Yamato to Star Blazers transition. Like, I remember, like, you, you brought a Battle of the Planets, and I'll talk about differences in approach to localization. You look at Battle of the Planets, and you look at Star Blazers. Well, the music was such an integral part of Star Blazers from the beginning. I don't think Nishizaki would have cut a deal unless the music mm-hmm. came with it. And there was a wave of anime that came over in the late 80s that had all the music and sound effects stripped out and replaced. And I'm glad that's not happening anymore because I don't think any of those shows benefited from that practice. No. (laughs) But the Yamato music was so huge in Japan that the two became inseparable. You literally couldn't have the show without the music, without Mm -hmm. Miyagawa's score. So, yeah, yeah, it's a big loss. I just wrote a tribute for him, by the way. It's going to be at scifijapan.com very soon. Oh, really? All right. It's good to know. We'll be There'll sure be a to... link to it from starblazers.com. Okay, and we'll put a link to it on our website as well, yeah. on the show notes. Okay. And so, could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Or is it well, all Star classified? Blazers Rebirth is the number one thing on my list of things to do, because I just love working on it so much. But as I said before, it doesn't pay all the bills, so I'm still doing mm-hmm. animation work. Like on um, what uh, shows? Well, my project for this year is for WB, and it's a new version of Scooby-Doo. Not what I dreamed of doing, but it's there, and it's keeping me busy. And it'll be on the air this fall, so if you're a Scooby-Doo fan, check it out. If you're not a Scooby-Doo fan, I will not be offended if you don't check it out. Is Scrappy-Doo present? No. Okay. Good, good. You've you've just endorsed the show. (laughs) Um, and then on the horizon is another Grease Monkey book, which has already been written and partially drawn. Star Blazers Rebirth is using up all my comic book energy right now, so that's <laughs> going to have to finish before Grease Monkey continues. But eventually I'd like to make Grease Monkey my cornerstone, because there are so many more stories I'd like to tell with those characters. They could go on for years and years. Tim Eldred, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, it was nice talking to you. Really happy that I could finally get all this stuff out there into the world. No problem. And, and for thanks anyone, for doing this for us. Yeah, for anyone listening, if uh, you have any feedback 
for questions to follow up with Tim Eldred if we ever get him back on the show or just comments in general about some of the things that were said on tonight's program, go ahead, email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail message at our phone number, which is 206-666-4AWO. That's 206-666-4296. And I guess that'll do it for us this week since this will be pretty much our entire program. All right. <laughs> All right. Can I say one more thing before we go? Sure. Sure. Thumbs up, Tim. <laughs> yes. Nice, nice. 